Hello and welcome to episode 95 of Feckin' Metal. I am your host, Fergal Trainer. Some of you might be wondering why I played that damned song, love song, at the end of the last episode, episode 94. Of course, it was Valentine's Day, so there was a tie-in there. But I also wanted to demonstrate that people can be both punk and heavy metal. So playing bass on that song was Algie Ward, who went on to form the new wave of British heavy metal band Tank, a highly revered, well-respected new wave of British heavy metal band. And it was Neil's distaste of punk, which made me think that, well, you know, musicians are versatile and can be both in a punk band, which he absolutely detests, and in a heavy metal band, which are highly regarded. So I just threw that little clip in there at the end to demonstrate that. And I get into a bit more of that later on with Neil talking about his dislike of punk and maybe if there's a double standard in play there as well. Now, this is the final episode in my series with Neil. So the third part, I did cut a large chunk of this one out. There is a point later on in the interview where Neil is talking about the police in America and then it jumps to him talking about touring with Rush. I did cut a large chunk there because he went into some kind of political talk, talking about the youth movement in the in America in the 1960s, 1970s. And it went on for quite a while and I thought maybe you didn't quite come here for that. But we do discuss a lot of heavy metal, rock music related topics in this one as well. So uh, we talk about his involvement in the Metal for Mothers compilation, the famous new wave of British heavy metal compilation that came out and featured bands like Iron Maiden, Praying Mantis, etc., We talk about his original vision for that album versus what was eventually released and his role and job in all of this. What exactly was his role here? He also talks about which roles he was paid for and which he didn't. As we know from the previous two parts of this, Neil had his fingers in many pies, but which areas was he actually officially employed and which was he kind of doing as a favour out of the goodness of his heart. Uh, he talks about uh, being a DJ on tour with Iron Maiden and all sorts of other things like Star Trek conventions, the Vietnam War, the Kennedy assassination and ghosts as well. We talk about the existence, potential existence of ghosts um, in this one. So I'm going to leave it here. This is it. This is the final part of my Neil K interview. I hope you enjoy. Now I'll just tell you about metal from others because that's sort of important, really. Yeah. Well, I wanted to chat about that actually. So yeah, go ahead. Well, I was obviously friendly with EMI because they knew me anyway, um, and I was always in and out of there. And all the record companies were supplying me with white labels of all their rock because they soon learned that I had one of the the only, you know, live club out- outlets for any of it. Yeah. And the audiences that made up the concert venues around the country were all clued in to what the goings on at the sound house in sounds every week so i got all the white labels sent to me Mm -hmm. and i could ask them for anything and i used to go up there and get posters and that's how i got to know the motorhead office as well with manager doug smith they were good friends too blimey i did half the bomber tour with them Mm. i still haven't recovered man (laughs) um you know, I mean, Lemmy became a good friend, actually, in the end, in a way. But anyway, so I was always going up there to the record companies, right? Um, and I was getting all these white labels and things. And um, one day, the A&R division of EMI had this young guy join them, Ashley Goodall. Um, and he called me into his office when I was up on a, a standard visit, you know. And he said, listen, he said, because I said, look, 
I, I need to talk to you as well. I've got all these demo tapes, right? All these demo tapes of new young bands, and I've got this idea of what we could do with you if you're receptive. We could put out like a feeler album, a compilation yeah. album of some of the best unsigned bands so that people, you know, around the country, can, our people can hear them. And, um, you know, I've got all these tapes and stuff. What, what do you think of the idea? And he said, yeah, it's good. It's really good. Why don't you come down, Neil, and bring some of these demo cassettes? You know, pick some out that you think should go on the album, bring them down, maybe uh, eight, nine bands or whatever, something like that, maybe ten, whatever, you can get on a vinyl yeah. album, bring them down, let me listen to them, leave them with me, and I'll talk to the round table at the end mm. of the week, and we'll see if we can, you know, mm. get it going. And I thought, yeah, this is great, finally. Anyway, you know, they phoned me up and said, yeah, it's a goer, mm. we're going to do it. Um, we just don't know what the hell to call it. And I said, oh, you know, I'll think about it. And I suddenly thought, got to be metal for motherfuckers, but I can't say <laughs> that, especially in public. So we called it, yeah, my suggestion, yeah. metal for mothers. Mother being the corrupt version of motherfucker, mm. American, right? This caused a lot of trouble up north. When we toured it with Maiden mm. and Mantis, up north of England, they didn't know what I meant by mother. For them, it was mother. And the only question they used to ask me when we used to go outside before the show, Steve and I used to name them mm. and meet the kids mm. and sign, mm. you know, they'd say, what's a mother? <laughs> and Baz came to a head and Glasgow Apollo, we were in Scotland, right? It was, for fuck knows, freezing February we were up there. Really cold, man. Snow was all over the place. Um, and I, you know, I was asked the same question by many of them Glas mm. Glaswegians, right? Um, what, what, you know, what is this? And when I could decipher what they were saying, I suddenly thought, oh, fuck it. I'm going to say this to everyone. That night, I was set up in front of the very high stage. The original Glasgow Apollo stage was about 14 feet in the air. It was mm. a fucking nightmare. And they, the crew set me up in front of the stage. And I was like at the cinema from the screen to the front row of the audience. They were seated. And um, I had this space between them and me. And I was mm. having fun with them. You know, we were, I said to them, you know, sling your requests over, guys. Let's have it. Hit me with them. And anyway, halfway through, I suddenly thought, I know, we've got to explain this to these jocks, you know, because they don't get it. And I said, listen, you lot, I'm very pleased to be here, very honoured to be here with you. My first visit, you know, um, mm. professionally to Scotland. And um, I understand that you're all having a bit of a problem with this album title, with, um, you know, the EMI album compilation that we just released. And I said, look, it's not metal for movers. It's American. It's metal for motherfuckers. Got it? Ah! <laughs> oh, man, mm. that was a significant <laughs> moment. <laughs> and they were real cool. But I'll tell you something funny. When we drove into town that, that 
afternoon, I, I was um, travelling with the band, with Maiden, in their old Zodiac limo, um, driven by Vic. Vic stuck in third <laughs> gear Vela. Um, th that particular Saturday, there was a double banger on, on the move in, in the centre. Celtic and Rangers were playing mm. at Glasgow, yeah. right, at the Rangers ground. Um, and just to make matters even worse, there was a massive Star Trek convention on in the city that afternoon. And when we drove in, the traffic was absolute at a standstill. And all we could see on one side of the road were maniac football fans. And on the other side, there's all these kids <laughs> dressed as Klingons, fucking weird creatures from Star Trek. And we're sitting there in our old Zodiac limo, right? And I, and I think, I think, fuck, you know, what, what, yeah, I must have taken something or drunk something. Because I don't believe what's going on here. And at one stage, they're oh. crossing over the road in opposite directions, like together. <laughs> and there's Klingons and Star Trekers and fucking football fans. And the football fans are all shouting for the Rangers. And the Star yeah. Trek people are shouting back. Fuck knows what they were saying. I have no idea to this day. Mm. And we were hooting with laughter, man. Yeah. Um, you know, um, but um, there has actually, though, we had another one in the Highlands as well. When we were crossing over from like Edinburgh to Glasgow, it was a winter tour we did. And mm. um, Vic, Vic Vella, our dear friend Vic, what a man. He was mm. Steve's right hand personal. He'd known Vic for years before anything ever happened with Maiden. Yeah. Vic was Maltese. Okay. He was, he was of the, if you upset me, I kill you. <laughs> no, he was all right. No, no, I, I always got on very, very, very well with Vic. We all did. Yeah. But Vic was, you know, he never passed the driving test. He only thought that there were three gears in the gearbox. Yeah. <laughs> it had a column change, I think. I can't remember for sure. But anyway, we used to drive around in this old extended, um, a Zodiac, Ford Zodiac convertible thing. Um, it, it had like an extra section in it. And Vic was perpetually stuck in third gear. And we used to have to shout at him, Vic second, Vic third, Vic fourth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's how the day's events usually began. Um, and um, there was an incident one night as well. We, back then on that first tour, there was no real money. We were staying in, in bloody bed and breakfast places. Mm. And up, up in Scotland, then they all closed at about 10 o'clock at night. And they warned you, you had to be in before 10. Otherwise, the door was locked. Mm. And while we were up, in, up, up there, you know, we finished up climbing up drain pipes and all sorts of things well after showtime finished just to get in. I mean, who wants to go to bed after pulling a major show? No, eh? no, no absolutely one. not. Go out and have a beer or two mm. and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, we used to get home late at night and we all used to get plastered mainly. Not Steve, no, not Steve ever, mm. ever. Very, very controlled. Yeah. Um, I used to have a few beers mm. or whatever, and um, a few potions, as they say, and so too all the others. And um, I can't remember who it was, but somebody was actually caught hanging out on the flagpole mm. one night of the hotel. You know, upside down like mm. a sloth, a sloth, and wouldn't come in. 
I'm not naming any names, not <laughs> in the slightest, will I? But the incident yeah. happened. And it took Mr. Harris and a few others to persuade the individual to come in. Okay. Yes. And it wasn't I, me. I'll, I'll make my own private guesses in my own head there. <laughs> well, you can guess all you want about that one, but I'm just telling yeah. you it happened. But please bear in mind on tour with us was Rod and the entourage and the sound crew, the lighting crew. You know, it was yeah. a full-blown tour. It's just unfortunate we were staying in Scottish, you know, bed and breakfasts. I mean, they pull you out of bloody bed. When I mean, one of the one of the legs on that tour was so long, it was bloody mm. impossible. One night we were in Scotland. The next show, the next day, the next night, was down on the Cornish Riviera. I mean, that is literally from one end of the yeah. country to the other. And hang on, there's a loading and setup to do mm. as well. You know, a bloody impossible. You know, we we did all that stuff as well, and it was a lot of fun. Very I used good. to like to it as it happens. So, um, but we, oh, go on, go on, Fergal. Sorry, I was going to just say how how much input did you have into the uh, Metal for Mothers compilation? Like the actual choosing of the songs. I know, like you were saying, you were going to the record companies. Well, I chose them. Oh, every single one. I chose them with the exception of one or two. Okay, there were one or two on there I didn't want. EMI overruled me. Mm. The other thing was. I was given to understand that the budget would be raised sufficiently so I could bring all the bands down to London studio and re-record their tracks sensibly. That was an understanding. And and uh, it was already agreed that I'd do these sleeve notes for it, which upset Jeff Barton, because up until then, he was the go-to guy for all metal sleeve notes. Mm. The fact I did them really pissed him off. Really? I didn't know that, you know, that was going to happen. But I'd have done them anyway, because yeah. it was basically my album. Um, sure. And we toured it as well. Um, so I chose about 80% of the tracks and the other weird ones on there were EMI's suggestion. Mm. They let me down badly, though. It was not the album I envisaged because the bands on it were not brought down to London to re-record their songs. The only ones who did that were Mantis and Maiden. Maiden recorded, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And Mantis too. I mean, we gave them each two tracks on the mother's album. Yeah. That's because they were fucking good. Mm. It was no, it, it wasn't, oh, we must do this and maybe more favoritism to get a deal. Mm. That's not it. I would like people to know that. I did it because they were very, very good. The other little band I really liked a lot, and they were kids but fun, Toad the Wet Sprocket. Mm. The singer was the oldest at about 18, and he was a milkman. Yeah. The other kids were like 15, 16, 14. They had the tiniest back line you've ever seen, smaller than Vox AC30s. And their parents used to drive them around. But they were a bloody good little blues band. Yeah. As the track on one show. I mean, the, look, Fergal, the bald truth of the fact is, the new wave of British heavy metal. See, when I was checking out bands, I knew that I kind of had this unique position between bands, the audience, and the industry. Mm. Now, at the time, the industry needed bands that could, you know, earn money. Yeah, That's their angle. That's their exercise. And that's what they need. Mm -hmm. They don't want a band that's going to hold a few hundred on a up the local pub on a Friday night. They want stadium circuit bands mm. that are capable of doing the job 
working on a massive stage in front of 100,000 people. My job was to find those bands. And if I couldn't find them, to me, there was no point bringing forward a band that are never going to get there. And uh, can I ask you a question here? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, sure. When you're saying my job was to find these bands. So what's your official role now? What's your official capacity here? I never really had one. I mean, I'm just me. Yeah. I mean, I had all these tapes. I became the go-to guy for all these happenings, bands and everything. Mm. But I never had an official position with anyone. Mm. I was just me. I don't know. I've been called many different things in my life. An entrepreneur, a this, a that. Mm. Um, God, the BBC had a really old-fashioned name for me. I had a BBC film crew here Mm. a couple of years back. Oh, yes, impresario. Impresario. <laughs> fucking impresario, for Christ's That's a good sakes. one. Uh, that's what Bernard Belfont was in the 50s at the London Palladium. But um, you, you said at the start, and I, I fully took it in, in like, I, I felt like you were on the level with me, like, you know, you were saying, like, I didn't do this for the money, I didn't do this for anything, but, like, when you're involved in... A, oh, that's right. When you're involved in the creation of, like, the likes of Metal for Mothers and you're doing a tour and stuff, like, are you getting paid for this or like is this a job no 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 there was no payment for metal from others yeah. no percentage okay no none of that um i was one of the most famous poorest people on the planet at the bandwagon the subcontractors that had the contract paid me the daring sum of money of 25 pounds a week back then and when my son was born um i actually 1979 they actually raised my weekly salary to 80 quid a week. Okay. I never earned anything from any of the other things that I did, but touring I did. When I toured with like straight music or one of the other promotion companies, mm. I did Donington. Yeah. Yeah. Donington earned me the princely sum of 100 quid, which was all right back in 1980. Mm. After all, I was the littlest person on the bill. Mm. The fact Scorpions, Judas Priest, Rainbow were all there as well. Hey, it was an honour. I would have liked more, but that was what I got. On the road on tour with Maiden, I earned good money. Yeah. They actually paid me what I felt I was worth. Sure. So you were like their opening act, kind of. Yeah. I I did. I, I, you know, I always performed the basic duty back then. Linkman, compare and DJ. What they call an MC today. Yeah. Rock. Um, I'd be playing sounds when people came in. Yeah. I would introduce the support band. Mm. And when, you know, when they'd finished, they, I, you know, managers and promoters would tell me either get an encore or not, yeah. if the time was or it wasn't. And then I'd be playing stuff and talking to the audience at big gigs and small while the backline crew set up, you know, took away the support band gear and brought forward the main the main acts back line. Mm. I'd be playing sounds and, you know, saying to people, you know, throw us a few requests if you've got them. This one's for all the Scorpions fans here tonight. Mm. I'm sure there's just one or two of you hiding in the base bins, right? Mm. You know, I'd be having fun with them. The sales of Sharon, hopefully. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so, so that job now is handled by a PA system, basically, at all concerts now. But like, when did that die down for you being the the compare MC and essentially the DJ at Iron Maiden shows? Well, I, I, it, sort of, yeah, it sort of evolved for me, really, Fergal. I mean, I, you know, I, I said I had my show on the road, which I showed you 
the pictures of my truck, my sound system. Yeah. And the last Soundhouse show was played actually in 1992. Okay. At one of my regular venues, the last one. Um, by then, I'd been working for Jim White from Mountain Records as managing his complex down in London. Mm-hmm. I learned about sound engineering there. I mean, I'd always been keen on learning about sound because my sound system required somebody who knew how to use it. Yeah. It wasn't a disco system. It was a fucking great PA with graphic equalizers, slave amps, and I was already into that. And um, down at Samurai, you know, the customers were, some of them well-known, most of them from the pop world, unfortunately. Mm. You know, we had like the popsters of the day, Boy George, Banana Rama, these sort of people. Mm. Um, although Motorhead did, did come down pre-tour once. Mm. So they, I don't know, the best I ever did there, Art Garfunkel came over for a series of concerts at the Royal Albert Hall, London. Yeah, And it was to Samurai Complex he came to for pre-production and rehearsal. And we had him there for about three weeks, I think. And I walked in Studio A one morning, big rehearsal studio. Mm. And um, there was a Steinway set up. And the hero from my youth mm. was sitting at the piano playing Bridge Over Troubled Water. Mm. And I can assure you that's one and only time that the fan thing hit me. Okay. He, he was more your hero than Paul Simon was. Both of them, really, mm. equally. Okay. I mean, you know, I mean, their early works showed the whole world the way about harmonising vocals and how to sing properly. Yeah. Um, remember, I mean, I grew up through the 60s. Mm. It would be natural that I'd be interested in folk rock, humble, humble people from long hair, yeah. era, you know. Mm. Um, we were all... Fergal, we were all terribly naive. We were. The power of the people in America was much stronger anyway, but they had reasons to stop the Vietnam War, which I always thought was a complete waste of time. I really did. And we all did. And I mean, you know, hey, I'm not a warmonger, but I believe in fighting for what you need to, for standing up for what's right. Sorry, can I, can I interject here? You believe that stopping the war was a waste of time or... The campaigns no, to stop the no, war were a waste of time. No, the war was a waste of time. Okay. The Vietnam War was a complete waste of time, in Sorry, my yeah. view. Okay. Um, well, and also, I, I mean, it was the, the way young people got together to protest and not join the draft. Mm. You know, I, looking back on it, that was very naive. But mm. socially, it was a vibrant time. Mm. You know, Timothy Leary... We were all into love, peace, and lentils. You know, I mean, it, it was a it was a, a brilliant lot of young people for the first time ever. First of all, in the fifties, post-war, a new generation. This time with independence from their parents, yes, who always made them talk like them, dress like them, mm. think like them, mm. not open your mouth unless you're spoken to, and call everyone by uncle and auntie. Mm. The, the post-war era gave gave the first post-war generation teenagers. That's when they were born. Independence, jobs, money, couldn't really afford a car, but motorcycles was the way about it. Yeah. And, of course, this manifested itself in the 60s in the battles on the beaches between the mods and rockers. 
Mm. Um, so young people, independence, and then, of course, massive social upheaval as the generation moved forward, technically, socially, educationally, musically. You know, and th th these are all guiding features, but you also had, as well, a massive problem with race, racism, colour. You know, they killed Martin Luther King. There's no question that President Kennedy was assassinated, in my view, and many, many others. It was a mm. combined job between all. The mafia, the CIA, the FBI, for all different reasons, they wanted him gone. The war was profitable in Vietnam, and he wanted to stop it anyway. Mm. There was a whole load of other things too. Mm. But the young people for the first time ever rebelled. Rebellion is a good thing. And I think the American kids, they did the right thing. Looking back, it was a naive way they did it. But they were at absolute loggerheads with the authorities all the time. Beatings. You know, I mean, the, the American police back then were absolute motherfuckers. They really were. They were dreadful. They were mothers. They were mothers, but they <laughs> were. I got a phone call. I mean, Rush were one, were one of my total favourite bands of all time. Yeah. Later on, Dream Theatre as well, but not with the same, you know, emotion mm. uh, as Rush. And um, at the bandwagon, Rush were a very popular band. Mm. They really were. You know, the kids out front followed their every time change, their move, their stunts, their pulls, their pushes. Favorite track of mine was Twenty One Twelve. Oh yeah. And I did a special. I did a special version of it. I took the studio opening, the synthesizer opening, and then at the critical moment joined it directly to the live from the, from Exit the stage um, left. live mm -hmm. album. Yeah. Yeah, we're all the world's stage. Oh, all the world's right. stage. Sorry, apologies. Yeah. yeah that's, no, no, that's right. Um, and, um, you know, Rush were a great band, and I loved them and loved them. And then one day, John Curd phoned me up from Straight Music. He said, listen, he said, um, I've got Rush coming over. I said, I know. I've got my tickets already. He, I said, well, actually, I have them, but you're going to send them to me. He <laughs> said, actually, I'm going to send you something else. I'm going to send you an invitation to join the tour. What do you say to oh. that? I said, how much do I have to pay you to do this? <laughs> he said, no, no. He said, we want you. We want you. Um, the support band is Wild Horses. I oh, said, are you um, sure? Brian Robertson. Jimmy Bain's band. Yeah, yeah, and, and Jimmy yeah. Bain. Yeah, the pair of them. I said to John, I mean, John Kern and I, I used to go down to his offices in London. We were, we were good friends. Mm. Because I, I was like neutral. My position um, on tours has always been like neutral because I'm not attached to any of the bands. Well, I was with Priest mm. Management, but they were, we've made no friends mm. anyway. Um, you know, my position is that I'm neutral. Yeah. If something's not right or something's wrong or someone asks me about it, I can speak without formal favour. Without affiliation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, I used to um, hang out with John Curd a lot when I was in London. Mm. Um, anyway, he phoned me up. He offered me the tour. I said, yeah, I said, I'd love to do it, John. He said, you do realise that on the tour is um, Bingley Hall Stafford. And apart from the others, um, that is a 10,000 uh, body. And um, the acoustics are not that good. And I said, you know, look, I'll do it. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. He said they brought their own sound crew over as well. Mm. I said, well, that's all right. They'll look after me. Mm. 
I never had trouble really with any sound mm. engineer. And later on, you know, when I became a sound engineer and toured myself um, in Europe and stuff, I always looked after DJs that were coming along to do what I used to do. Yes. You know, with sound. It's, you know, I mean, in the early days, sound engineers used to look down on humble DJs as if mm. they're the vermin of the earth. Yeah. And they give you only so much volume yeah. and no more. Yeah, but yeah, my yeah. position was different. I had a point to make. I was in the sound house and I needed the power and the glory of, of the power. Mm. That's the point. And it was difficult at first. Mm. But yeah, touring with Rush was an extraordinary experience. Um, back then, every night before the show, Neil Peart used to have a black felt tunnel built from the wings to his, his drum kit, the riser. He didn't like being seen. And he used to carry a Bible mm. with him that he was reading from the wings to the drum kit. Geddy Lee was, I mean, they're not like heavy metalers. These guys are more like music professors. Mm. What well, didn't you they know, call Neil um, Peart a professor? Well, yeah, they did. He was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. That's all I can tell you. Mm. But they all were. Alex Lyson, a brilliant guitarist. Mm. Geddy Lee, well, he came over to me. We used to all eat together. We used to chow together mm. before the shows with the caterers, all of us, yeah. the biggest and smallest. And when I was on my station one time where I'd been set up before the show, Geddy Lee came over to me and he said, would you mind if I have a look through your record? Mm -hmm. record? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was so astonished that he had the time, you know, to give little me. Yeah. And I said, sure. And he he spoke to me for a, a little mm. bit. You know, he, he um at the time, I mean, he said, yeah, that he said, um, we, we, we've we've heard of you. We know what mm. you're doing. We're not the only Canadian band involved with you, are we? I said, no. Actually, um, amongst others, April one. Oh yeah. I did yeah. a tour with them. They were well, on their their reading bill, or not the reading to Jesus. They were on the Monsters of Rock bill as well, weren't they? That uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were. But that was after I'd done I'd done a tour right. with them. Um, and they came to the wagon as another band to meet and meet, greet mm. the kids as well. We had them too. Um, and Geddy Lee and I suddenly found ourselves talking about, you know, the punters, the music and stuff. And I, I came to the conclusion that they are all very intellectual. Mm. They are totally. They're very mm. well educated. Um, but the one thing that we seem to have in common with them is their drive, their determination to yeah. get there. In the early days with Rush, um, they had a very hard time getting a deal. Mm. That was mainly because of Geddy Lee's high-pitched voice, apparently. It's this old game. The voice, first of all, the band. Mm. The back line has to be as good as the weakest part of the band, which is the singer. Mm. The singer is human-powered, the back line are electrically powered. Yeah. The front guy has to sing equally as well as the back line play. Otherwise, you've got an imbalance and it ain't going to work. That's one of the most common features of small pub bands. Mm. Some of them can and some of them can't. Mm. Then you, you have to look at the dynamics of the whole thing as well. Then you start moving to, well, can they play well? 
you know, can a guitarist play a clean chord or does he fumble against the other strings unintentionally that he doesn't mean to hold down or play? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In other words, are they good, precise musicians? Right. Then you've got to look at the content of what they're playing and how, how it goes down. All these things sort of matter. And consequently, when you start looking at the top echelon, you quickly realize that all these various points, they do come into play. Mm. Rush. I mean, Lemmy once said, Lemmy once said to me, he said, why can't you do for us what you did for Iron Maiden? And I said, Lemmy, Motorhead are a much-loved band, but because of your rawness, your history with Hawkwind, and you don't sing like Bruce Dickinson. Mm. And if you did, it wouldn't be right. Mm. Because your material is what it is, but I can't lift you any further. Yeah. And he said, yeah, take are only a three-piece. I said, Really? I said, and so are Rush. They're only a three-piece. Yeah. Uh, and there lies the difference. But, but Motorhead would, would like would never have made sense if Motorhead were like a mainstream band who were playing the Long Beach Arena no, four nights in a row. I like, agree it just doesn't you. make any sense. Like they're the underground band. It, it, see, with Motorhead and bands like them, like Ozzy, no one is gonna listen to them for their great singing ability. They ain't got one. No. You know what? people lock into with them is a counterculture attitude mm. right and it's driven by you know their approach to life yeah and what how they see it you know it's a social attitude thing although you know they are big counterculture leaders certainly can i can i bring up something here that you might you might strongly disagree with me about this but sure why not yeah sure so the first Motorhead album, to me, that sounds quite similar to punk music that was around at the time. Good point. A totally good point. A totally good point, which is why back then a lot of punks used to follow Motorhead. Mm. Yeah, but you see, the, the area is cloudy, Fergal. Mm. In America, for example, bands like the New, the New York Dolls, um, were sort of considered a rock band, mm. whereas over here they were definitely not one of ours. We pigeonholed and segregated everything. Our audience would never get on with a punk audience, no bloody way, mm. nor their music. Mm. In America, the attitude is completely different. If it's got a guitar in it, it must be a rock band. Wrong. Mm. Absolutely wrong. Yeah. Attitudes collect fans yeah not musical ability so much with certain bands you know there have been a few like it i mean christ hawkwind well <laughs> hawkwind did it on weird electronics really mm. and a girl dancing who used to get her tits out once in a while and flop them around mm. but you can never accuse hawkwind of being a great band as such as musicians because mm. they weren't mm. um you know, Lemmy, Lemmy's vocals, Ozzy's vocals. Ozzy was better when he was younger, actually. He did, he could, you know, hold a tune in a way. But these people are not, they're not great singers. Nor is Eddie Lee. But, but, so the, the point is that the vocals at the time matched the music. Okay. You couldn't have 
in Motorhead, a vocalist like Bruce Dickinson. Yes, but what I'm going to ask you is here now is that how can you reconcile your complete hatred of punk with your love of Motorhead when there are huge similarities between the two? <laughs> I knew you'd come up with that because of what I said. <laughs> well, Motorhead were, for me, the bottom of my barrel, but acceptable in their way. At least it was tight and it was played and they weren't gobbing on people and spitting on people and ripping up their clothes. Okay. And they were most decidedly one of ours. Raw, unrefined rock at its most base. But but they were definitely ours, not theirs. But like, how were they definitely ours? I mean, how do you how do you establish that they were definitely ours? Fast moving. It was fast moving heavy metal. Yeah. And also. The vocals were in tune most of the time. Mm. And also, with punk, you never really got lead guitar br bridges. True. And that's one of the deciding factors about Motorhead. Mm. Okay. Uh, okay. I'll accept your answer. <laughs> you know, Phil Taylor and Fast Eddie, you know, between them, they put on a show. They played. True. It may have been raucous and raw. Mm. Lemmy's Lemmy's voice up here somewhere, but it worked. It worked. I must say that um, I do find now you 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 expressed your opinions on punk earlier in the show. I don't share those opinions with you, but I I was interested to hear what you had to say. But um, I find that there's maybe a lot of kind of a double standard with some people who despise punk but love something that sounds very similar to punk. Also, I'd be interested to hear, like, you strongly dislike punk, as you've said, but, like, you know, The Damned were a punk band who went on to release music that was kind of far and away from, you know, what the Sex Pistols were doing. Like, do you dislike music that was released by punk bands in their later period? Like, I, I'm just thinking of a Damned song, like, you know, um, The History of the World Part One, which is, like, it doesn't sound anything like... Uh, God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. In fact, it's like kind of quite progressive if you compare it to that. Did you dislike everything from punk or was it just the early stages of punk? It, it was, I think, the thing that made me dislike punk completely was its anti-music attitude and what it tried to do as a fashion. Mm. I think I think it was more about an attitude and the fact that they, they played and sang so fucking abysmally. And I put that down to... You know, um, well, probably my own, my own personal experiences and my family's through the years. Mm. Um, I understand, you know, that that that's probably a bit unhealthy from my point of view. Mm. You know, I should I shouldn't classify things like that. Yeah. Um, but having been brought up on a neat dose of what's good and what isn't, mm. um, I tended to sort out the finest. Um, I never really played any real crossover stuff. Well, we're, we're obsessed with classifying things anyway over here. Mm. It's far more liberal to an extent in the States, mm. um, which is why we, why the audiences over there would, you know, would have various punk bands heralded as great rocking bands, but they're not. They're not ours at all. Mm. Um, and I, I have reflected the audience as well in hard rock. Back then, they wouldn't be seen dead listening to a punk band of any sort. Sure. And they wouldn't go to their gigs either. Um, all I was doing, no, I wasn't copying them. I had my own ideas about it. 
and I disliked intensely what their movement was out to try and do. Clever managers like Malcolm McLaren seized upon it mm. and made lots of money out of mm. it, but their attitude was they're sick, sick to death of, you know, what we now call classic rock, and we're going to destroy it and remove it. And for a while, they nearly succeeded. And my, my position was their arch enemy. I'm not having it. I'm sorry. It's simple. It's not going to happen. Mm. And nor have you had. Mm. And that's that. <laughs> if they were musically inclined. But remember, Fergal, I'm a man of technical music as well. Mm. I mean, musicianship, that sort of thing. I'm deeply in there. Mm. When someone stands on a stage and can't even play a clean chord, I ain't going to love them. Mm. The more insulting their lyrics get, the more annoyed I get. Mm. And then when they sing out a tune, that's it, finished. All right. I ain't got time for them. Okay. I'm old school. Hey, I'm 74 years old now, and nothing much has changed in my life in that respect. All right. Okay, look, we'll leave the punk thing there. Oh, no, you, you're entitled. You know, obviously everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Anyway, you're a different generation to me, and you're going to see things completely differently. You know, by I am a slightly different generation, yeah. Now, look, we leave the punk thing there. And look, I wanted to touch on it again, but that's fine. What I wanted to ask you, though, was like you did your uh, Neil K heavy metal soundhouse kind of touring thing. You, you were on the likes of Monsters of Rock. You said something like you were going to get. Did you say your your last gig was in 1992? Uh, the soundhouse yeah. show, the club thing, was 1992. Okay. But by then, um, I'd gone to Japan on tour with Praying Mantis. Mm. I was invited out there. And while I was there, I did a deal with their record company to produce Metal for Mothers 92, mm. which sadly wasn't released in Europe. It was for the Asian territories in Australia. Okay. That was a load of bands that I'd come across at Samurai, mm. at Jim, Jim's place. And I worked with the Japanese record company and produced and arranged the new, they're on CD this time, mm. not vinyl. Mm. Metal from Others 92. Mm. Um, and um, I stayed at Samurai for quite a while. I left, when I played the last Soundhouse show in 92, we did the Metal from Others 92 for the Japanese record company. Then I got asked to executively produce a Praying Mantis album for the same record company, mm. um, A Cry for the New World. Yeah. Then um, I injured myself in a studio accident and pulled my back out whilst recording that album. Actually, we the you know went to um, Carly Trapp's studio in Hamburg to mix mm. it. That's the Scorpions. Um, Hang out. Engineer. Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, but in the course of um, of injury, Steve let me um, recuperate. I was in hospital. I was hospitalised. Um, they thought I developed MS. When in actual fact, I had um, a trapped nerve in my spine between two discs. Oh shit! Okay, well that's better than MS. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. But they the hospital didn't know it at the time, and I was in for about I don't know mm. on and off for weeks and weeks. And I couldn't walk at all. Mm. Steve, when I, when I could have been, he let me stay in his villa out in Portugal. And it was there that his um, estate manager, um, Manu da Silva, 
took me one day down to the eloquently named Rua do Crime. That's the crime road, right, on the Algarve, the car mm, road, mm. to see this band that he'd been trying to do something with. And that's when I met the Portuguese bar band Irish, spelt Iris. It's Portuguese for rainbow. And it turned out that through a number of years, I finished up managing them, producing them, arranging them, and even orchestrating with them mm. so many albums. I was with them for 30 years. Okay. In the course of doing so, um, I bought we bought a place out there, um, and I used to tour with them as well, out to the to Madeira, the Azores. Mm. We did the whole of Portugal. Um, and I, I, you know, I worked on some of, well, a lot, of their material, but they weren't a heavy metal band. They were a good rock band, mm. but they were really, really good. Mm. They've been working every night, you know, entertaining tourists. They were shit up, actually. And we, they're we, playing we, their own material, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. But what we did develop successfully was um, a sort of a conversion from Portuguese classic um, folk songs into rock-based with acoustic guitar and stuff as well, and mandolins and things mm. like that. Um, and at the same time, the leader of the band had his headquarters in a tumble-down cinema mm. in a fishing village called Fuzeca. Mm. And I was seconded with them at the music school that he ran there. And there they taught rock, guitar, drums, keyboards, singing. And I instigated even gophering. Gophering? To train young kids. Yeah, gophering. Yeah, sure. Gophering. Go for this, go for that. Learn how to wrap your cables uh, up. Okay, yeah. Learn how to put yeah. up a drum kit. Backline mm. training. Mm. All that stuff. And um, we frequently used to take some of the older kids out to one-offs. We used to play the Faro Bike Show mm. um, outdoor event in summer. That was like 30,000, 40,000. Maiden have played it. And I did sound for that as well when I was there. Um, and I had a whole new existence down in Portugal, actually, building bands, touring with my band, working with others, doing sound, producing, arranging. You know, I had a whole new life down there from about, well, from about 1992 on and off, I think 19, uh, no, 28, yeah till about 2018 the last album i think we did actually finished up taking something like four years to complete because they were difficult to work with um and what what, what what's your um what do you play in your own band no i don't have a band i don't play i'm a producer a ranger i do have no i've got i've got musical knowledge you know i, I can talk intervals and all sorts of things and scales um, oh, sorry. When you were saying your band, I sorry, I assumed you. No, no, I don't have a band. No, no, no. They were my band because I managed them officially on contract. All right, sorry. Irish. Um, that's what I meant by that. Yeah. Now let's talk about my Northern Irish band, Storm Zone. All right, let's go. Um, I was. I met the key members of what was to become Storm Zone that night in the picture I showed you outside Eddie's bar with Steve Harris, 
I went over there to Belfast to produce that little demo for these young kids. And over the years, the bass player, Graham, stayed in contact with me. Nothing much came of it. But suddenly, mm. um, Graham, yeah, I went in the studio with him over there. Suddenly, a good few years ago now, about six or seven albums back, um, Graham contacted me again and said, look, um, we're doing we're doing an album. We've got a great lineup. And they got this singer who sounds like Bruce, and he does the same thing. Mm. He's a killer. He really, really is. They're not kids. They're in their late 40s, early 50s, but boy, mm. can they play. Mm. And it's classic heavy metal. Mm. Classic. It's melodic, but it's powerful. Mm. Very similar. It's maiden-esque, but the big difference here is there are vocal harmonies mm. all over the place. Mm. And I personally love the stuff. So Graham said, look, we'd like you to come out and produce us. Um, that's a paying gig, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a business thing yeah. as well. Yeah. And they sent me the stuff over. I had to listen to the songs. I was, I said, yeah, I'm coming. No question. I'll fly in into um, City Airport and um, yeah. you know, we'll get down to it. And my God, my liver's never been the same since. Um, the first thing that happened was I flew in about half nine one morning. Mm. Not having been to bed the night before. And the first thing that happened was they greeted me at the airport with a bottle of tequila. And then we went back to Graham's place just to basically hair at a dog job. It's wet your whistle. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, they had a studio all sorted, engineer worked out and everything. Mm. And um, I was to produce and arrange the album to the best of my ability. The engineer was not great. He was not a rock man. No. And we had to work very hard to get anything out of it. All right. But that's that's sort of the first album came along. And um, I loved And eventually, um, they got signed up to the lead singer of the Tigers of Pantang from the new wave of... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Jess Cox, still going, yeah? still going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's got his own label and stuff and distribution. And eventually they got signed up with them. And um, after a while, Graham always came to me with their musical ideas and just asked for comments, mm. you know. Mm. And I've on and off been with them, both as friend and, if you like, advisor when they want it, mm. to their works. And I like this band very much. They're the band that should have happened. They're fucking great. Storm Zone. Mm. You should check them out. Okay. They've been down to the South anyway. They've played. They've supported bands like Y&T. They even went on tour with them to Spain and Europe. Um, right. I've never I've never been to a Y&T gig. But... No, okay. Well, no, they've, they've supported others as okay. well. Many right. others. Right. Check them out anyway for their own for their own stuff. Storm Zone. Yeah. They're out there. Yeah, they operate out of Belfast. Um, that's home, um, County Antrim right. as well. Okay. Um, yep. And I think you, they're, they're traditional. They're maiden-esque, but they're very, very good. And their singer, Harvey, is really good. Harvey. Okay, I will definitely check them out. He actually went to audition for Maiden when Bruce oh, left the no band. Way. How far did he get? Actually, I don't know. Um, I think, I think it was Rod more than anyone apparently that didn't take uh, him on but that was lucky for storm zone in a way in some ways i gotta say 
<laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a nice way of looking at it. It was lucky for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, Harvey's been in a lot of bands. He was in a Maiden Covers band anyway. Yeah. And a whole load of other things. Yeah, yeah. They're all, they're all, you know, actually, but my mate Graham in the band, funnily enough, another bass player. Don't it always seem to be that way with me? Mm. Um, he's got his own company anyway. They manufacture hospital operating theatre equipment. You know, he's got a very, very successful business. Mm. And it's earned him a really nice house. Mm and everything that he could ever want. But he wanted to do it for rock and roll. Well, there you go. Now, the ghost story, before I forget. Okay. I told you that we called our truck Black Bess. Yes. Black Bess was the Middle Ages mount of one highwayman, Dick Turpin. Mm, Okay. The highwayman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stand and deliver. That was the usual call from the highwaymen. Mm-hmm. All of them. Yeah. Twirling their flintlocks with their tricorn hats. Anyway, my lighting engineer and I were on the way home one night from a gig in, in East London. It was about three o'clock in the morning. Okay. We were in our seven tonner, Black Bess, laboring up this hill. I always dropped John off on my way through to. Well, I used to live in Maidenhead, which is west of Windsor, where the Queen had her castle, and it's still there. I had a long way home. I used to drop John off in northwest London. Anyway, we're, we're chugging up this hill in second gear one, one night, three o'clock in the morning. At the top of this steep hill, we're in second, doing about 15 miles an hour, full load. At the top of the hill, there's a little T-junction on the left. There's a sort of road that rises even higher and goes up over the hill. Mm. Anyway, it's customary whenever I'm there, I always look on the left to make sure that nothing's coming out of there. Of course. Even at yeah. three in the morning. Yeah. When I've looked across this night, and it's in the book, and I've told Steve this one too, I look across, and there, in full view, plain view, is a highwayman with a tricorn hat twirling a pair of flintlocks sitting on a huge black horse. Mm-hmm. I said to John, John, look over there and tell me what you see. He said, yeah, I can see him. Never occurred to me. I said, well, he must have been at a fancy dress party or something like that and nicked the horse or borrowed it for the night and he's on his way home and he's got a mask on and he's staring straight at us. Mm -hmm. And I've looked across again and he stopped twirling those pistols and they're pointing at us. And I said to John, you know what, John, I've got a very, very bad feeling about this in the most silly way. It's cannot, you know, it's got to be some lunatic escaped from the madhouse, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And he looked across, he said, I can see him as plain as day. And I, I wonder who he is and what he is. 30 seconds later, he vanished as if he never existed. Mm. Years later, we found out from locals that in actual fact, he is the ghost known as the highwayman, and he has appeared there very often late at night to many. Okay. It was just the link that my truck was called Black Bess, and so too was his horse. And we had this feeling for a long time that maybe one encouraged the other to appear. Okay. In front of us. Listen, I, I, I love that. You know, that's a... A good story of yours, but like it's a true story. I, I find that you know, like I find it hard to relate to um 
stories where like there's supernatural elements and things like that. I, I just don't believe in any of that stuff. But like if you do, well, then I, I cannot argue with you. Well, it happened for sure. I mean, we put it in the book. It's true. I've had many other spiritual happenings and events. I, I was like you. Mm. What, I, what I like to think is what I what I what I like to think, though, is what's more likely that that was a ghost of a man on a horse or that it was something different, <laughs> which is more likely. <laughs> you believe what you believe. But the legend locally... No, I'm just saying, like, which is more likely that it was a ghost of a man on a horse or it was something else? No, it was a ghost of a man on a horse. He was a highwayman. Was it? Was it? Do you believe in ghosts? I don't. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes. That's not the first one I've seen. But then, then mediums have told me of my future many times. I was... I never believed in well, anything like, like that. But like that, that so you've gone to multiple mediums? Yes. But only since. Okay. No, I don't. I haven't for a very long time. But Steve's mm-hmm. very spiritual these days as well. Look, here's another story that I'll end with, just, just as something to think about. It goes, it relates to my father. Okay. Towards the end of the Second World War, I um, mean, it was obvious that Germany was beaten. And, and you know, the RAF were laying back rather than hammering all the way through in bomber command to the end. My father still hadn't had enough for some reason or other. And he volunteered to leave bomber command and join air transport command in the Far East, mm-hmm. in Burma and India. He was posted to a squadron operating Dakotas, DC-3s, mm-hmm. transport plane, twin engine, unarmed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of them around still today, loads of them. And his squadron was dropping supplies to um, the troops on the ground, you know, being supplied. They're not on. Sure. Anyway, the time came that my father was and his crew were posted to another squadron and they were going to be flown to the other airfield, wherever it was. And my dad's kit bag had already been put on the aircraft and the crew were lining up outside the aircraft with one or two others, you know, to get on board, you know, before door shut. Yeah. Anyway, basically, when they were called to load, load on, you know, get on board, my father suddenly fell over in a dead faint and was transported to the base hospital where it was determined that he had gotten a bad case of malaria. He didn't wake up for nine or 10 days. When he did wake up, he tells me, his commanding officer came to see him and asked him how he was. And my dad replied that he was feeling a lot better and you know, just wanted to rejoin his crew. Mm. And the CO said to him, well, you won't be doing that. And my dad wanted to know why. Mm. And the CO said, well, actually, that plane took off and an hour later, in a monsoon out, outburst, a burst of heavy rain, it flew straight into a mountain, and they're all dead. You're the only survivor of that flight. And I told Steve this story as well. And it's obvious that I wouldn't be around if Dad was on that plane. Mm-hmm. And you make of it what you will, Fergal. Okay, look, I'm not going to argue with you or whatever. But, uh... oh, it's a true story. It's a true story. No, I'm sure I know the story is true, but what you read into it is your own personal interpretation. 
Well, I wouldn't be around that much, I could assure you. You certainly would not be around. <laughs> I would not in any way. You certainly would not be around had your dad fallen into the plane. But like, or Sorry, into the mountain. But like what you read into the fact that he wasn't on the plane, what you read into that, that's your own. That's your own thing. Well, I'm never, never seeking to try and turn people into beliefs that they don't have. Everybody is entitled to their own opinion on most things. And I take yours as, as is. It's all right. All right. Well, look, thank you very much. I really appreciate you doing the podcast. And yeah, it was it was fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm always around, Fergal. Now, you have my email. Um, I do. If you, if in the future you want to visit me again for anything, yeah, maybe, maybe some of your people, your followers and fans, would maybe like to put some questions to me about anything for a future thing. If they like that, I'm willing to do whatever you want with you again. I'm sure they will. I'm sure people that I know who also do podcasts would love to interview you themselves because I know several, several podcasters who would love to speak to you. I know off the top of my head, multiple. I'd be more than happy to oblige them. Thank you very much, Neil. I really appreciate it. You've been a fantastic guest and uh, you give me like over three hours of your time. So I really appreciate that. Like it's. I appreciate you, you know, inviting me on. No, nobody ever gives me, nobody ever gives me that much time ever, ever. It's like an hour, hour and a half max. So I really appreciate it. Well, you know, the book's out. Yes. Recollections of the Rock DJ from Stefan Duras. I'm sure you'll give it a plug anyway. I will at the end of the episode as well. Yeah. When I sign off, but yeah. You know, it's there. It's a very, very encompassing book. It follows my whole life. Uh, uh, you know, a brief resume we've had tonight. Um, from my school days onwards um, mm. and explains everything about how I hated the place anyway, much like Bruce did really um, for obvious reasons yeah. you know, I mean it's there and um, should you, you know, want me to return for a questions and answers session or something as well I'd be more than happy to do so at any Excellent. time, and if, if your other podcasters, you know, want to um, contact me, just give them my email um I will. Fergal, I will. And I'll be very pleased to, you know, talk with them and be happy to spend some time with them. I will. That's no problem. Thank you very much. I'm just an ordinary guy. That's all. I'm normal. No. Oh, do you know what? In my experience, you're a lovely bloke, Dale. And it was it was an absolute pleasure to speak to you. I've enjoyed being, I've enjoyed the session with you, Fergal, too. It's been very searching, very interesting. Some great questions mm. as well. And I think a lot of important things have been you know, opened up as well. I think so too. That's that's the thing. It's great. I love doing these things because everyone that I've ever been interviewed with is a very serious-minded, you know, music person from my world as well. And they always have very, very good things to ask. That's important. Excellent. Well, look, um, thank you again. And um, yeah, I think we can leave it there for now. But uh, I, yep. I, I will definitely be in touch again. And... Uh, possibly I might be in touch about other people who might be interested in speaking to you. But at the very least, actually, I think I'll be in touch again in general, if you don't mind, actually, if, if you don't mind. No, I, listen, I I understand that, you know, more, mortality is a fact of life these days, whereas many years ago, I never thought about it. Mm. I'm, I'm 74 now, as I said. I have mm. no idea what the man upstairs has in mind for me. I'm mm. retired now. Um, I, you know, I, I have my own studio here in mm. my house, and that's where we're talking from tonight, mm. where I still do some stuff. Um, 
but I don't know how many more years I've got. I have no idea. And mm. while the book's out and I'm I'm here and I've got most of my faculties mm. and I, I can, you know, feed the history part of all this yeah. to others that never had an opportunity to be there. That's mm. the important thing. The generations mm. have moved forward. So mm. I kind of think it's important. So, yeah, anytime you want, um, we'll be free to arrange another one and maybe answer a few questions from your, you know, your people as well. Lovely. Well, thank you very much, Neil. I really appreciate it. You're you're a very good man. I appreciate it. Thanks again, Fergal, for, for everything. I've, I, I've much appreciated your interview too. It's been very good. Take care and have a good Christmas. Thank you. All right, see you. Good night. Cheers now. Bye. Happy Christmas. And to you. Bye. Goodbye. All right, so that was Neil Kay, and that was the third and final part of my interview that I conducted with him back in December of last year. As you heard Neil say there at the end, if you want to get in touch with him, you can. Give me a shout, and I will share his email address with you. Any potential podcasters or interviewers out there who would like to speak to Neil, I'll happily share his email address. If you would like to buy Neil's book, this will be in the episode description as well, but you can contact, and I think he pronounced this person's name as Stefan, but it's spelled S-T-J-E-P-A-N-J-U-R-A-S at fanclub at maidencroatia.com. If you want to buy Neil's book, get in contact there. That's going to do it for this episode. I think I'll play us out with a little bit of Iron Maiden because that's been the overall theme of these episodes. And I have some different and interesting things coming up in the coming weeks. So, you know, stay tuned and I'll talk to you then. All right. I will see you next time. Oh